0: I can just sit and absorb who this person is and why they came in. How scared are they? How anxious are they? How depressed are they? How are they moving their body in a way that tells me that they're in pain or not in pain? Welcome to Story Listeners, The Healer Season, a research podcast investigating the role of narrative listening in vocations. In this second episode, our healer is Rachel Pearl, an emergency room doctor at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. She speaks with our reporter, Milo Gladstein, and talks about the realities of listening for someone's story in a setting and in a healthcare system where time is at a premium. Milo talks about what he learned with Maisie Barbosa, Alexis Austere, and Michael Humphrey next on Story Listeners.
1: Okay, Milo, who are we learning from this week?
2: Today, we are learning from actually my cousin, Rachel. She lives in Los Angeles, California. She is an ER doctor.
0: Technically, emergency medicine would be anything in the first two hours of any type of emergency from pediatric, obstetric, trauma, cardiac, you name it. So our job is to rapidly diagnose, manage, and stabilize patients to the next level of care including deciding if they can go home or if they can, if they need to stay in the hospital, if they need surgery, if they need specialized care, psychiatric care, et cetera. So on any given shift, I'll see somewhere between 15 and 25 patients. Um, and depending in what, on what part of the ER I'm working, it could be high acuity, meaning it's all trauma, stroke, uh, car- cardiac, unstable people to like the least acute would be fast track, which is more just suturing and broken bones and and stuff like that.
3: What made you decide to suggest your, your cousin in the first place, Milo?
2: Um, I mean, playing off of the theme of healers, uh, obviously a ER doctor is a pretty obvious choice. But beyond that, my cousin, Rachel, has a kind of special presence about her. She, when you talk to her, it's kind of unlike talking to most people in daily life. She really, it really feels like she's listening to you. I was curious for my own reasons and for the, you know, going deeper into the podcast that we're doing and the research that we're doing to find out how she uses listening and the skills she uses in her daily life.
0: When I walk into a room, I often will ask a patient why they came in or how I can help them. And I think it's important that. And I didn't used to do this, but you just let them go until they stop. So previously, I would think that would be a waste of time. I really just need the information I need. Like, what is your symptom? Why did you come here? How long has it been going on? Does it radiate? What makes it come and go? There's these series of questions that you're taught in medical. You're a medic, right? So you have a whole framework of how to extract information so that you can make a diagnosis quickly. I changed things a little bit. Now I just let people talk because of two reasons. One is that I can just sit and absorb who this person is and why they came in. How scared are they? How anxious are they? How depressed are they? How are they moving their body in a way that tells me that they're in pain or not in pain? And then also the listening
2: is actually um, a form of care. You know, she had a moment where she talked about just getting really frustrated because she's like, I'm doing what I was trained to do in medical school. But she talked about how One of the things they don't train you to do is really listen to people. They just train you to like, here's the problem. Here's how you diagnose. Here is what you do for said diagnosis. But oftentimes that's not the case. Um, And so this frustration kind of turned into curiosity. This is where the listening comes in
0: because you got to let people tell their story to really, you would never know if you didn't ask,
2: right? Or if you didn't allow them the chance to explain. Because everything that they're saying is pertinent to what's happening.
4: Did she talk about the factors that go into active listening at all?
2: A little bit. She talked about even little things like taking a deep breath before going into the room and like really preparing like, okay, I'm going to a new patient. Let me have like just two seconds to take a deep breath, go in, recenter and go in and really be able to listen to that person's story. If I'm in
0: flow, in practice with meditation or self-care or breathing, then I'm in a much better place. Like I'm not going to get triggered and I can remain sort of objective. Um, in the moment it's, uh, it's just taking a a pause, whether that means leaving the room, taking a deep breath and that's not always possible. So it doesn't always go well, but it's just slowing things down a little bit.
2: And she talked about a lot how in the beginning of her career, she would kind of ask those bullet-pointed questions of like, these are the four questions that I need. I need to find out exactly what's ailing you, exactly where it hurts, and exactly what time it started. And not following up on any of those. And so I think some of the skills she uses is really kind of following up and allowing people to really dive deep into their own story.
3: She prepares herself in a lot of ways, right? She, I think she talked about mindfulness a little bit too, like meditation and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, she did. Um, you know, a lot of people always ask people who work in any type of healing, but especially emergency medicine, like, how do you do it? How do you deal with people's shit? But a lot of it is about preparing what you do outside of the job and how you prepare yourself. So she does, as Mike, you just mentioned, do a lot of meditation, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of journaling and preparing for each day. Um, and a sense of like, if my own mind is right, then I'm ready to go in and help other people.
3: Theoretically, I think this is a really important point because um, Carl Rogers, who was a psychologist mid 20th century wrote a book on about active listening and mainly focused on how you do it In the most prescriptive kinds of ways. So if somebody says to you, you know, I have a lot of pain and I am tired of waiting around. Took you forever to get here. If you're not, if you're not prepared for that as a person, you're probably going to respond and say, "That's the way it is. There are other people in who are also waiting. Get over it. You know, something like that." But what Roger says is, what you do instead is purposefully reflect what you just heard, so they feel heard, and say something response like, "Sounds like." your frustration is making you even more uncomfortable than than you were before. And that the person goes, yeah, and it's because I had to wait. And so it sounds like you're frustrated with the whole process. And yeah, that's exactly right. And people start to feel hurt in that. But what's so important in what you just said, Milo, that's really easy to say in theory. But if you're not ready to go into those spaces and respond that way, you're not going to respond that way, you know. Throughout those
0: years, there are plenty of times that I was just sort of like, you're here for chest pain. Obviously, you're not having a heart attack. Just go home because I have too many patients to see and too many sick patients to sit here and talk to you about the reasons why you're sad. I know that sounds awful, but that's the reality when you're in a time crunch.
2: I think the really interesting thing that she's been looking into recently is genetic trauma within our family bloodline as we are Jewish and our family did escape the Holocaust. Um, And so the last time I saw her and had a really in-depth conversation with her about Genetic trauma and the fact that we're only, I mean, even like my parents and then like even my younger cousins were only three or four generations removed. Uh,
0: so I grew up in a wealthy suburb outside of San Francisco and, um, my nuclear family of origin, uh, was overall very healthy and stable. So, um, I had a safe upbringing, I had parents that were attentive to my needs, and I had a great education, and I have two brothers that, I was, that I'm close to now. As far as listening, um, I grew up with parents that suffer probably from generational trauma, and so if you look at our family tree, there's you can really see that many people have suffered across the board even though it wasn't spoken of, I was aware there was a lot of yelling in my house. There was a lot of anger and rage and unpredictability, even though on the surface, everything was fine. Um, and so I think I just absorbed that and became sensitive to people's moods, people's needs, because if, if I wasn't, I, uh, then there may be consequences. So whether that meant like somebody, I mean, specifically my mother um, had a real issue with rage and anger. So if I wasn't careful, I would be subject to it. So I I became very attuned very early in life just for the sake of my own safety and getting my needs met. I think there, it's no coincidence that I ended up in the healing arts because i i think i have a natural inclination to want to make people feel better it's just like i can't live very well with people not feeling well or having that purpose in me I, as far as being heard or being listened to yes and no you know i could i didn't speak much and i didn't voice many needs cuz i just think i from a gut level knew that sometimes it wasn't safe but Um, That being said, if I really had a problem, I could certainly express it and and get the help I needed. It just was more being careful about what I said, because it might trigger somebody. I think I became a better listener than a speaker very early.
4: Do you think that has influenced her work as an ER doctor?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think that to kind of discover this about our family, she had to listen to herself um, and Kind of think about her own experiences and her own how like genetic trauma affects her, which she then applied to her patients and really listening to them and their stories and going deeper beyond just, okay, you're here because you have hip pain. Okay, well, when was the first time that happened and going deeper into that? And,
0: and he was from Africa. And I think I said something like, can you remember a time when, you know, you had this pain in your hip in your past? And he said that he had been um, put on a stretching device. He was being tortured in his native country on a device and it stretched his hips. And and that was, it was just amazing to me how the body stores that kind of information. And, you know, this wasn't a guy that just wanted pain medication. He was having real pain, but it was rooted in his previous trauma. And so we had a torture survivor clinic at Bellevue. So I could refer him there for more like wraparound care and resources.
1: That's amazing that she has been able to take something that she found absent in her life and really bring it into her life. And not only hers, but for other people who may not have received that kind of listening if she wasn't
3: there. Because you can connect to this generational trauma that we're talking about right now. How do you feel about it personally? Like, what what's your opinion about the issue?
2: There's like a... I think it's a not only within our family but within the entire Jewish Jewish community there are kind of some common things that that I've noticed I think the thing that is kind of ingrained into and I don't want to make a generalization but I'm kind of going to make a generalization <laughs> um I think that there's like definitely higher levels of like anxiety and almost kind of jumpiness um and I've noticed it within myself I'm not super on edge but Comparatively to some other people I know, I think I kind of am.
3: Do you feel inspired by her, and in terms of the work that she's done to get to where she is? Absolutely. Um, and
2: I hadn't talked to her about any of this until this the last time I mm-hmm. saw her, and now I'm really curious about it. And I just keep uh, want to keep talking about it with her because I find it really, really interesting. Especially because everything we've talked about today, like it's not something you can change. Like it's going to be there. Whether you want it to be there or not. And it's going to manifest how it's going to manifest whether you want it to or not. Um, And it's more about how you move forward than the things that you carry with you.
1: So, Milo, what is the big thing that we learned? Gosh, gosh, I don't know what just came over me. Yeah? Literally just like in the past two seconds, my brain just...
3: Do you think invoking the questions around trauma is sort of like Probably. a little bit triggering? Yeah. It
1: might be. I think it
3: always is for me too. Because like
1: I'm sitting here and I just am like
3: It's weird
2: because I feel calmer and we're talking about like my trauma. Yeah, that is really
3: interesting.
1: Maybe it's because you are able to talk about it and get it out as whereas we're the ones taking it in and digesting it and listening to it, whereas you already kind of knew what you were gonna talk about. Okay, I'm ready. So, Milo, what's the big thing we heard here today?
2: Well, there is one more thing we haven't talked about yet. Is it okay if I go into this? Yeah, I think it's. I think it's fine. One of the other big things she does, on top of uh, ER doctor, this is a recent thing in her life and is tied to going into the genetic trauma aspect of her life and our life as a family. Um, she fairly recently started delving into the world of psychedelics, um, and. Initially, she used them to treat her own burnout. It's a huge issue within the medical field working long hours, often far longer than you're slotted for, and things like that, and not having time for yourself. And she really needed time to sit with herself.
0: Yeah. So psychedelic medicine is a lot about getting out of the head and getting into the heart and the, and the spirit. So for lack of better words, um, because language is really limiting and we often get caught up in words and explanations and logic when there's like a lot of information that's coming through other parts of us, right? You have like skills and natural instincts that um, are filtered through all the other senses, right? So everything, especially like smell that we underestimate. So Psychedelics just helped me tune into my other sources of intelligence and slow things down a little bit so that you can lean into not what's being said, but who this person is
2: and what they're feeling. Through that, she noticed a real therapeutic value to it, talked about how beneficial it was for her, and the idea that it would be really beneficial for pretty much everybody she knows, including my patients, um, many of which
0: come to the ER thinking they have some kind of emergency when in fact they're kind of coping with more of a psychological issues, um, addiction and um, depression, anxiety, you name it, that were causing more of a somatic presentation or symptoms that they, that's a very common pattern of presentation in the emergency department. Psychosocial things like um, being homeless or having familial issues, Um, violence, that kind of thing. So I felt like I was really at a standstill in how I could help my patients, like truly help them. So I started learning about this stuff and um, I did a year-long certification on psychedelic therapy and research. And then because it's not legal to practice with psychedelics in California yet, uh, I became trained in ketamine assisted psychotherapy so now i have a practice two days a week um doing
2: that she and her husband are going into business together she is kind of more on the medical side of things and licensed to do that part and her husband has gone back to school to do more uh, on the therapy side at the moment they mainly focus on ketamine therapy because other things such as psilocybin and mdma aren't quite legal yet in california but this is where she really gets to do the listening in her work, because as much as we've talked about, she tries to do that within the ER. Sometimes it's really just not feasible. Um, And that's just kind of the reality and the nature of the job. But this kind of new chapter of life for her is partially a passion project, but also where she really gets to delve into listening and see fewer patients, which allows her to really, really delve into those people's story and her own at the same time. People will
0: often tell you things And it's not that they're trying to be insincere. They just haven't learned how to connect what they're expressing with how they feel. And, and I find that's what I, you know, ketamine and psychedelics, when used properly and when successful, achieve that. And it's a beautiful thing. Just, uh, it's, it's hard to watch somebody saying everything's okay. And you can see that they're not okay.
3: Right. We always ask the question in our interviews to our listeners when they feel most listened to. And, uh, I think this came up right. When you asked her that question.
0: I mean, I feel really listened to with my husband. He's a really great active listener and he, he, he's very observant and he loves me a lot. So I always feel listened to with him. Other than that, it's funny, there's this time that I did in my training, my psychedelic training, we did a kind of a cohort um, experiment where we traded uh, turns being the sitter and being the client with psychedelics. So, And there was this psychiatrist who is trained in um, psychoanalysis, and she was just sitting with me, and I had a very difficult experience. And it was very interesting. It was like a very long, difficult experience full of tears and anguish and darkness. And at one point, I mean, I was just kind of going on and on and on. And she just sat there quietly the whole time. And I said, you know, why am I, why am I crying all the time? (laughs) And she just said, I think it's because you're sad. And it was just amazing because the next day I was like, no one's ever just not tried to fix something or say something to make me feel better or explain what it is I'm talking about. She literally just sat and listened and her only response was to a question. And it was a very simple response.
1: Okay. So, Turning back to this question, I'm going to ask you one more time. Milo, what is the big thing that we learned here today?
2: I think the biggest thing um, that we've learned or that I've learned is the mix of traditional healing and spiritual healing um, and how to kind of use your own trauma as a benefit to yourself and to your life and changing your outlook on things can really be the difference between getting stuck in the past and being able to step through the door into the future.
4: I've been in my head a lot during this episode and mostly, you know, um, listening to you guys instead of a lot of vocalizing my thoughts. And I think that was really interesting for me, um, because I got to really formulate my thoughts and I'm still sitting here trying to formulate them. But I think one thing that I loved hearing about today was listening is about putting in the work you don't even understand unless you sit with yourself and really feel almost that pain, um... And so I think what's impressive about what we've talked about today is it's about sitting with yourself, sitting with the, the people around you, and understanding that the intent is important. Um, and if you don't work hard on that and make sure that you are coming, bringing your full self to the conversation, that it could do serious harm. But she took it in a way to actually heal people.
1: I feel like this episode was super, super interesting due to the fact that we were really talking about internal listening. And internal listening is playing a role in listening to other people and listening to people, especially in Rachel's line of work. This was such a valuable viewpoint to get, especially in this season of the podcast, in hearing that listening is so much more than just hearing someone talk. It is about understanding physical like cues, nonverbal cues, just all these kind of things. And you can listen to yourself and grow and become a better listener to your own thoughts too. And while everyone is like, nobody knows me better than I know myself. I think that's absolute crap. I don't think that, I think that understanding who you are is something that is developed throughout life. And I think that that I don't want to say it's the meaning of life. I'm 20 years old. I don't think I can make that claim right now. (laughs) Um, but I think it's something that adds value to life because what would life be if you just knew exactly who you were and where you were going and what you're doing?
3: I'm really, I am really grateful for, for Rachel sharing her time with us because there are so many levels to listening and there's so many levels to our narratives. But I think one of the most important levels is that level where. We cross over into each other's lives in a way that we're vulnerable to each other. And, uh, and that's where I think the development of self really happens. And I think that's where you, that never stops. So even if you're 20, Maisie, and, and I'm 54, um, we're both on that journey, you know, and there, there are probably times in your life when you've been ahead of me and vice versa, you know. So one of the things I learned from Rachel's talk is that these interactions she has all day long with people has the potential to bring some of her own work into uh, into the room and I think that's when life gets especially special (laughs) you know uh, when we can do the work um for ourselves while we are doing the work with others that's that's the point of being alive so I do think that's the meaning of life I like the way you put that (laughs) thank you Milo this was great